0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. Well, it's great to see you all uh, today. Uh, This is episode five in my ongoing series, which is going to be this summer and early fall. It's called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. And yes, it is about as controversial as the name would suggest, but not because I want it to be. It's because it's controversial in our own souls. It is odd how the spirit of the age can cultivate different sensitivity points and just nerve endings are exposed and so different words can actually be trigger words for us and different ideas can be really hard for us to even get near. And this series is not on uh, the, just the racial combat between black and white, even though that is part of the series, because this is going to be dealing with the American culture between 1914 and 1974. We're going to, in a sense, do a deep dive into that period of time, and then extract out spiritual truths from that that help us understand the world in which we live so that we can live strongly to influence the world. Uh, that we are in. So it doesn't really do us any good to put our head in the sand and just act like this didn't happen. Let's walk through this together and let's allow God to train us. By the way, is my microphone all right? Is, is it blipping in and out? Okay. Uh, so uh, this this particular episode is called The Red Summer. And I, I, I've thought about this. You know, I, I was actually going to change the name uh, because As we move forward in this uh, series, you're gonna recognize that the color red is going to be very, very important for this season of history. And red is going to denote communism. And so we're gonna have something coming up called the Red Scare. And that is a huge thing that is going to happen uh, following World War, well, it's gonna happen starting in this time period because of what's called the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. But it is really going to kick into high gear in the 1940s, after World War II, and Stalin's, uh, we would call them missteps. Of course, for the, the communists, they were saying they were uh, <clears throat> uh, serendipitous opportunities. And so, but it's going to create a movement of communism throughout the world where the communists are going to begin to take territory, and the Americans are not wanting communism to spread, and so we are going to make maneuvers to stop that spread welcome to Vietnam. And so that is this time period that we are in, in this stretch. We have a lot of dramas, a lot of miniature dramas, and the color red is going to be very significant. Isn't it interesting? We have black, white, red. These are all very significant colors. They denote a time period. And so the red summer is not speaking of communism. That's why it's somewhat misleading. So the first four episodes that I gave all sort of harkened back to an issue of uh, race. As as we're going through the time period, because we really haven't uh, dived very deeply into the time period. I keep telling you this is about 1914 through 1974. Uh, it seems like we've hit everything around it, but not that time period. And that is because I'm trying to lay a, a foundation of understanding of the culture in which we are entering into, that we are walking into because it really is a divided culture we are in a period of time called segregation or Jim Crow where we have an understanding that there is two different people groups here you have the whites and everyone else but most of the everyone else are black and so there are other colors that are sort of mixed into that and they get sort of the same treatment but the blacks are in a special threat Uh, To the white community and there are reasons for that that I've tried to bring up because at first it's going to sound like just you know some weird phobia that the whites have but there really are cultivated ideas that have created a fear. They have been trained that black people behave a certain way that they are prone to certain behaviors. If you thought that they were prone to those behaviors, then you would put an extra guard up. You would have an extra suspicion. And so it's going to create a a barrier in our culture. And there is a diminishment of a race in this land, even though we have now, since the emancipation, since Lincoln emancipated the slaves uh, back in 1863, there is going to be an equality, or a declared equality, but it's an equality with separation. And with that separation is a diminishment, or we could call, if you play the piano, you know what a damper pedal is, a damper pedal on their privileges. So they are, as the black person would say, they do not possess full citizenship. They can't do what a white person can do. And that's actually true. We may not like that statement, but they couldn't whether it was buying land or whether it was being able to vote without harassment (laughs) and intimidation. I mean, it was a very serious thing. There were certain things they couldn't do. They couldn't walk through this door. They couldn't drink from that drinking fountain. They couldn't use that toilet. And that seems so odd to us. And I think it's even hard for us to comprehend because our world has rectified in many ways some of these uh, odd behaviors But the impact of those odd behaviors in that time are still felt today. And that's the world we are living in. We're living in a world that has a heavy emphasis on affirmative action or to purposely recreate balance. So to recreate the balance, now we have positive discrimination is what it would be called, where we are going to discriminate against the white to elevate those that in history had a hindrance against them which of course, this doesn't go over well with the white person either, and seems to only stimulate the issue even more. And so this easily can become a political topic, and that's precisely what I am not wanting it to become. I want it to become a Christian thing for us, where we evaluate it, and we relate to these things, and we say, what would Christ do in this situation? So part five, the red summer. And I'm going to, I haven't done this up to this point, but I'm going to show you a picture of my family. This is my, a picture of my family from like four or five years ago. So if my kids, which they will see this, but uh, and some of them are here right now, are going to be like, oh, how did you pick this picture? Well, I thought it was a fun picture to show. It was uh, our, our Christmas card from like, I don't know, four or five years ago. But you'll notice just looking at the dynamic of my family that it's sort of a little microcosm of America, we sort of are the picture of everything we have a little black and a little white and a little uh, asian uh in there and it's all the tensions in this time period you know that we didn't just have a a red scare for communism and we could call it you know the americans the whites had a black scare uh but we also had a yellow scare now uh it's it's politically incorrect to call asians yellow which after you understand the yellow scare, you can sort of understand why they don't prefer that, that term. And yeah, I don't know that I would prefer being called yellow uh, either, you know, because in our culture, yellow means uh, wimpy and cowardly too. Did you know that? And so it's like, hey, I wouldn't prefer that either. And so our family is a little mixture of all of those things. And so as I'm going through this, for instance, Reese and Lily, who are not here, uh, both are adopted from Haiti, and they're going through this series and, you know, I'm talking it through with them, and they're, they're learning things. Reese was very disturbed about Jim Crow laws. And he could, I mean, he was like, that would, I don't like that at all. And I'm thinking, you know what? I, I don't either. Uh, that was, but just imagine being black-skinned and hearing about that. I mean, it is a very unique thing to swallow and digest. 1914 and 1974, yeah. Yeah, supposedly we're covering that time period. This is 60 years that define America today, and I could also say they define the church today in a lot of ways. There are uh, certain things that have happened since 1974 that have had an influence on us. So it's not just that this is the only thing, but this is a massive influence upon the world in which we live here. So there is going to be an event that you know, I have mentioned, and I've done an entire series, I think it was a 42-part series on it, it's called World War I. It is a huge thing in history, and most of the world in which we live is defined by it. In fact, communism is going to come into play in and through World War I. And the Soviet Union, or what was called the Russian Empire, the Tsar of Russia is going to be deposed. He's gonna be overthrown and killed, and his family's gonna be killed. They had had a dynasty there for over 300 years. And then Vladimir Lenin is going to step in and take control and is going to call this the Soviet Union. And it is the biggest piece of property on earth At that time, before World War I, Russia was the most powerful uh, country in the world, and now it has been taken over by the communists. I mean, this is a huge event, and this is going to spread throughout, and it's going to be a bigger part of World War II and beyond. But you also are going to have crisis in the Middle East. That's all coming out of World War I. We have so many factors that come out of World War I. I mean, you're going to discover all sorts of technological developments because war is an amazing opportunity to spend money on technological uh, development. And so we're going to see the advent of technology explode. We're going to go from what would be called an old world to the new world. The world in which we live is going to explode onto the scene starting in 1914. And so, so much of this, just like I said, the first major motion picture is going to be released in 1915, and so the world in which we live, which is a media-driven world, a technologically-driven world is starting right here. Even though everything's black and white, and if you watch the video of those times, it's not very good film, but it is, actually so entrancing to people when they see it that they will watch even bad film. Have you ever looked at a movie that came out when you were young and now you watch it? Like, That's terrible special effects because your tastes have been so refined. Well, back then, funny moving characters in black and white that didn't even have words you know, on the screen, no audio to accompany, except for some bad music or some organ playing in the background. It was really impressive. So the same thing is true for us. But what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a crisis because here in America, we have no interest in participating in a foreign war. We're not going over to Europe to fight their war, but Europe is going to end up coming to us and pick a fight with us. And this is different than World War II, which is going to be the bombing of Pearl Harbor. This is more of an affront where Germany is going to try and antagonize and bring in Mexico to join them in waging war against the United States. And so finally, the, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's called the Zimmerman telegram. And so they also released their U-boats, which Woodrow Wilson said, when you do that, we will have no choice but to fight. And Woodrow Wilson was a pacifist, so that was quite the irony. And sure enough, America is stirred. Um, I mean, you, you're talking high percentage of America is like, there's no way we're doing this. There's no way we're doing this. There's no way we're doing this. And then suddenly in 1918, yes, all of America's like, we're doing this. Now it creates a tension for the black community. The black community, when they fought in the the Civil War to aid and abet what was taking place, you could only imagine how political and social that felt, and they had major repercussions from that, where if you ever were deemed a soldier, then you got extra treatment from the whites, and you don't really want extra treatment. And so now World War I is taking place, and there's a debate amongst the black community of if they should participate, if they should willfully join, because they're really not treated as citizens, so should they fight as citizens? And the argument is going to be swayed by a guy named W.E.B. Du Bois, and I'll read you what he wrote to the black community in 1918. But this is, a, this is called Closed Ranks, is typically the name for it, even though it also could be called The Crisis. This is a letter to the black community in July of 1918, written by W.E.B. Du Bois. We could call, I mean, there's a lot of descriptions you could give to uh, this man, but he was a voice to the black people. And this is what he writes. This is in its entirety. So we're literally seeing a letter to the black community, or an article is actually what it was, that is going to massively change the direction of this people. This is the crisis of the world, he wrote. For all the long years to come, men will point to the year 1918 as the great day of decision the day when the world decided whether it would submit to military despotism in an endless armed peace, if peace it could be called, or whether they would put down the menace of German militarism and inaugurate the United States of the world. We of the colored race have no ordinary interest in the outcome. That which the German power represents today spells the death to the aspirations of Negroes and all darker races for equality, freedom, and democracy. See, Hitler hasn't come on the scene. Actually, he's fighting in World War I, but he's just a young guy, you know, like 17. But the ideas of white supremacy or Aryan supremacy were deeply baked into the German people already, and the blacks know it. And so not only are the Germans militaristic and desirous to spread this, but uh, you know they, they are needing to be stopped in at all regards so we of the colored race have no ordinary interest in the outcome that which the german power represents today spells death to the aspirations of negroes and all darker races for equality freedom and democracy let us not hesitate let us while this war lasts forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our own white fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. We make no ordinary sacrifice, but we make it gladly and willingly with our eyes lifted to the hills. This is a big moment. And the black people, 350,000 men, are going to join the American forces and they aren't going to be treated well, by the way, in the American forces, but they're going to sacrifice, lay down their lives. I think like 178 are gonna win major medals of honor and valor. And it's like a, a big sacrifice for them. And there's arguments amongst them. It's like, how could we serve this country that has not served us? And yet, W.E.B. Du Bois' e. uh, argument is, if you want full citizenship, then act like full citizens. This was the argument. And so, this is going to become a, a tender point in our history. And the reason I'm pressing my finger on it is because I think God would want to press his finger on this. So we're gonna walk through this. They are going to then send forth many men. They're gonna be segregated army because whites can't fight alongside blacks. I mean, it's, it's really rather embarrassing when we think back on our history. It's like, are, you, are we serious? Yes, very serious about this. And so uh, there, there are some of the black troops that are saying goodbye and leaving uh, to potentially lay down their lives in Europe. And I know I'm skipping a lot by saying now they're returning. <laughs> it's like, but this isn't a message on World War I. And even what I'm talking about today, the Red Summer, has really nothing to do with World War I, even though it does. The return of the heroic black soldiers in 1919 and the hope of full citizenship, their hope was after expending themselves, after expending their blood, after fighting on behalf of a people group, not just a nation, but they are also representing their people group. And they are desiring that the black people would gain full citizenship. It's like, look, we're willing to do whatever it takes to just be treated as normal Americans. And so they're going to come back and there's gonna be a big parade in New York for the, for the blacks uh, separate. So, the parade for the the white soldiers, and then there's a separate parade for the blacks and so and there you see uh, part of that parade. But now we have what we could call a threat, and I don't know if, if you know enough about this time period from what I've said to understand the threat, but let's see if I can articulate it for you, and even though it's irrational to our minds today, this is the culture in which we are studying right now. And this is our heritage as a nation. The threat to the social order. A black man with confidence, military training, and a gun. There's a threat, guys. You see, if that black man has been put down, put down, put down, put down, and now you give him military training and a gun, he could retaliate. He could, he could step away from his rightful position in the order of things. Uh, And every, I mean, not everyone, but there was a feeling of threat in this amongst the white community and the black community. I can't really speak for it to say, you know, because, you know, you could say, well, what if they were saying, yeah, we're going to get them back? Well, then you could understand why the white community would feel a little unstable. At the same time, we have no evidence of that other than this sheer desire that they would actually enter into a position of true equality, not just equality with separation or equality with a damper pedal on there. So here's some evidences of what was taking place at the time, US Postal Officer, May 1919, so this is going to be right when they're returning. As far back as the first movement of the American troops to France, the Negro publicists began to avail themselves of the argument that since the Negro was fit to wear the uniform, he was therefore fit for everything else. And you know, can't you almost hear the, the snarl in there, fit for everything else? No. See, he's, he might be fit to wear a uniform, but he's not fit for everything else. And that attitude of diminishment has been constantly there. So here's a Texas federal agent, same, same month, May 1919. One of the principal elements causing concern is the returned Negro soldier who is not readily fitting back into his prior status of pre-war times. So there's a status that they were in before they left. And you have to recognize in all of the minds of every single black man is that when he comes back, he has earned the right to be full citizen. And you have to admit, if if you were in those shoes or those boots, guys, wouldn't you be thinking the same? It's like, have I not proved myself that I deserve to be treated as one of you? And yet your skin is a dead giveaway that you must maintain a lower rung? Ooh, that's hard. So now we have even greater tension. So what was already tense is now going to have a little uh, spike added to it. So the National World War I Museum and Memorial says this, Many whites feared that the return of tens of thousands of black veterans with experience living abroad and more significantly having received military training would be unwilling to resubmit to traditional political and social subjugation in the U.S. It just—it was a real thing and everyone felt it. There There is a subjugation, even though you wouldn't want to call it that. There is a subjugation politically and socially in the United States and they were afraid that if this these black people that had tasted of other countries like some of the black people as they the black soldiers as they talk about their experience in France were just like so this is what normal people get to feel. And they'd never felt that before. And even though there was a lot of difficulty in the military system, being a U.S. soldier, and there was a lot of challenge that they had, they also tasted of something. They tasted of something that their people, as they would call it, had not tasted before. And in their own heritage, they'd never felt it. They still, in a sense, felt like extensions of slavery. They never really had felt like they were cut free to truly just function as everyone else around them functioned. And these are things that if you never went through, I think are hard to relate to. It's just like, why don't you just appreciate what you have is the, t- the tendency. That's, our, that's the attitude we have a tendency to have. Why don't you just appreciate what you have instead of recognizing that if you've gone through that and you've never really felt that freedom, and then you go overseas and you taste something, you could imagine how hard it would be to once again be subjugated to a bad system. They just fought against Germany. Germany. And this is the system in Germany. They mistreat those of darker colored skin. Aryan supremacy is white skin rules. And so this was the mentality even for Wilhelm II, who is the Kaiser of Germany at the time. Hitler is going to bring that into full scale mode in World War II. And of course you remember what he's going to do to the Jews, but that's also the way he sees the blacks. They just don't have very many of them in Germany. But that's his entire attitude towards them. So, quite the warm homecoming. I mean, some of you are like, hey, we threw them a parade. I mean, come on. You know, that, that's a lot. That's more than we've ever given them before. Well, granted. But this isn't really a good uh, homecoming. So, here's a picture. This is sort of an iconic picture. Uh, that is very intriguing to me. If you just study the picture, you sort of see this resistance. This is right during you know, the start of the red summer that I'm describing, which is the summer of 1919. What's happening? The black veterans are returning home. And this is going to create a dynamic in our culture. And so these men are, are soldiers, they're strong, and they're returning to communities all over the South, and some have migrated to the North. And this is a threat. So the National World War I Museum and Memorial says this, American servicemen returned from the First World War only to find a new type of violent conflict waiting for them at home. An outbreak of racial violence known as the Red Summer occurred in 1919, an event that affected at least 26 cities across the United States. History.com says, the ink had barely dried on, the tree, uh, dried on the Treaty of Versailles, that's the treaty that is going to end World War I, which formally ended World War I when recently returned black veterans grabbed their guns and stationed themselves on rooftops in black neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., prepared to act as snipers in the case of mob violence in July of 1919. Others set up blockades around Howard University, a black intellectual hub creating a protective ring around residents. So... The biggest threat, the black community felt like it was being attacked, and I'm not gonna argue that it wasn't. So they're going to get their guns out, and they're gonna position themselves in defense. Well, you could just imagine how that translated as well. But a lot of the returning military, supposedly it was the sailors that got drunk, the white sailors when they returned, and they were gonna put down this insurrection. They were gonna put the black man back in his place. And yeah, maybe he had gone over and had this great experience, but now he's back in America. And so this is the tension of the Red Summer. History.com says, White sailors recently home from the war had been on a days-long drunken rampage assaulting and in some cases lynching black people on the Capitol streets. The relentless onslaught, and by the way, we haven't covered what lynching is, and I'm going to have to go into it, and I say I have to go into it, not because I want to. It is actually one of the most disturbing things in all of American history. The Ku Klux Klan was sort of known for the art of lynching, and that is to make sure that you teach a lesson to all other blacks that would dare do what this one did. And so you are going to abuse that black person and you are going to ultimately hang them as a statement. You're going to declare to that community, you don't want to do what he did or she did. And it's a lesson. It's vigilante justice, which means it wasn't the government, but what the government was famous for doing is looking the other way. So the, you know a lot of the tensions we have today where you see things like Black Lives Matter, and you see the defunding of the police types of movements that most of us are like, "Uh, are you serious? So we're going to remove the police from Minneapolis, and that makes sense. It'll make more sense to you culturally when you understand the history, because in so many of these lynchings, it was the sheriff of the town that was either a part of it, or he strategically turned his back and looked the other way. And the police did nothing. And so you can understand why a black community might not have confidence in the police. Do You see that? Now, this is something that for us, we're like, hey, I have a great relationship with the police. Yeah, and the police aren't that. But the history in our country, if you, are, if you have a heritage where your story in your history includes lynchings of your family members or your friends, in the communities you came out of, you could understand why if a black man is killed by a white police officer, or it seems like there's injustice that is done from a white police officer to a black man, whoa. Okay, so I'm not even trying to be political about this. I'm trying to lay a foundation so you understand the tensions. The threat to the workforce. So when you get all of these black men returning home, now you have jobs, and after a war, you have usually some financial challenge uh, in any any uh, nation. And yeah, we're dealing with it. Even though technically, in the long run, World War One is going to be a boon for American e- the economy. It's the center of uh, international trade and finance is going to go from London to New York uh, in in and through World War One, and so we're going to become a very strong nation because of World War One. It's sort of an odd thing, but we still are struggling for jobs uh, in this time, and this became sort of the motto. Jobs should be made available to whites first. Now, doesn't, isn't that sort of a dead giveaway, just right there, of the attitude of our nation? It is a superiority. Whether or not we want to describe it that way, because that has bad... We don't like that. We don't like to even make mention of it but it's obviously baked into our history here. So the National World War I Museum and Memorial, racial tensions across the US were exacerbated by the discharge of millions of military personnel back to their homes and domestic lives following the end of the war. Competition for opportunities in post-war America combined with a radically changed social landscape placed blacks and whites in conflict with one another, leading to tragic results. The threat to the, with a period after the end of it, I'm not sure how that period got in there, the Northern Industrial Centers. So by the way, you need to delete that period in your mind. The National World War I Museum and Memorial says, World War I intensified the Great Migration, the mass immigration of African Americans from the rural South to the industrial North and Midwest in hopes of escaping the poverty and discrimination of Jim Crow laws. By the summer of 1919, approximately 500,000, in some cases I've I've heard um, one million, African Americans had resettled in northern cities. In many cases, northern whites, many of them newly arrived immigrants themselves, did not welcome black newcomers. So a lot of what's going to happen in the red summer isn't just in the south, which is where a lot of the violence has always historically been. And we look at the north as being very you know, well-agreed uh, to the idea of, of black people. Sure, come into our home, come into our neighborhood, come into our community, take our jobs. So when you have that sort of migration north and you already have a challenge for jobs, can you just begin to feel the tensions here, especially if you believe that those jobs should be made available first to white folk. Remember, white people feel like this is their nation. And the black people should go somewhere else. This is a very big part of what is taking place. That first blockbuster motion picture, which was called The Birth of a Nation, is emphasizing that. This was a huge success, like Woodrow Wilson himself is applauding saying great movie. That is basically saying our great problem is what they were calling the Negro problem. And you see, if you were to not do something about it, they portray in that movie the black people as the threats and the Ku Klux Klan as the protectors. So the heroes in that movie are actually the Ku Klux Klan, which is so disturbing to our souls that we can't even hardly stomach that that could possibly be in our history. So this is going to become the phrase for the black man. Return from the fighting, fighting. Yeah, you might think World War I is over, it's only just begun for you. That was supposed to be the war to end all wars? Well, now your real war begins because you still have to fight for survival. The National World War I Museum and Memorial says this, many black leaders encouraged returning servicemen to assert themselves and to fight for the dignity and respect that they had earned through their military service. W.E.B. E. W. E. Du Bois famously called upon black veterans to not simply return from fighting, but to return fighting. Many black veterans were mistreated and in some cases attacked while in uniform. Lynchings increased from 64 in 1918 to 83 in 1919. Membership in the revived Ku Klux Klan, reborn after D.W. Griffith's 19 film The Birth of a Nation, skyrocketed into the millions by the early 1920s. So the membership in the Ku Klux Klan is exploding. We're in the millions now. So this is a huge social phenomenon cultural phenomenon. This is vigilante justice. Since the government is having to act like they have nothing to do with this, and they're going to keep their hands clean, they're going to turn a blind eye to this thing called the Ku Klux Klan and let them sort of maintain the social order. So during the the Red Summer you're going to see this breakout of violence against black people all over uh, the country. 26 major cities this happened where there were hundreds and hundreds of deaths, lynchings and, uh, and black people killed. But what happened in addition to that is even hard to describe. For instance, in Chicago, which was one of the biggest riots that uh, took place, the race riots is what they called, this is just a picture of neighborhood children getting in on the activity. So they are going to run this black family away from their home and then loot their home. And this is all the children just sort of cheering and enjoying the fact that they get to loot a black person's home. It's like, could you imagine being raised? It's one thing for someone with a hood on to do this mischievous deed, but this is just like outright, yeah, this is who we are. We're white kids, who are they? And so it was outright outspoken and clear. W.E.B. Du Bois said this in May of 1919 as these race riots are starting. Now, W.E.E. his name is really hard to say. W.E.B. Du Bois is really going to have a difficult time swallowing what is taking place. Now, you can imagine, he's the one that encouraged them to go to war. And he, in a sense, assured them that if they acted like full citizens, then when they returned as heroes, and they showed themselves in that battle, in that war, that the American people, they would. They'll they'll treat you as if you truly are full citizens. And this is what he said. This is the country to which we soldiers of democracy return. This is the fatherland for which we fought. But by the God of heaven, we are cowards if now that that war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. James Weldon Johnson in the summer of 1919 said this, I knew it to be true, but it was almost an impossibility for me to realize as a truth that men and women of my race were being mobbed chased, dragged from streetcars, beaten and killed within the shadow of the dome of the Capitol at the very front door of the White House. So the National World War I Museum and Memorial said this, most violent incidents during the red summer of 1919 were not initiated by fringe white supremacist terror groups. Ordinary white civilians and veterans, unaffiliated with the Ku Klux Klan or any other racist organization formed most of the mobs. Many of the dozens of incidents that occurred over the course of the year were made far worse because local, state, and federal officials hesitated in taking action or turned a blind eye to the violence. Racial violence broke out in some of the nation's most populous cities. A four-day riot in Washington, D.C. began on July 19 when a rumor that black men had assaulted a white woman incited mobs to attack local black neighborhoods and assault random African-American individuals on the streets. Off-duty sailors and recently discharged Army veterans led the mobs. When the local police were overwhelmed by the mayhem, Washington's black community banded together to fight back, arming themselves with bats, clubs, pistols, and knives. Soon, black mobs were attacking white passerbys just as indiscriminately as whites did to blacks. In nearby Norfolk, Virginia, parades celebrating the return of a unit of African-American troops from Europe turned into a bloody melee, and two black servicemen were killed. Ultimately, US President Woodrow Wilson had to order troops to secure the streets. So here's a picture from Chicago and where the white folks all had bricks in their hands. And you, know, you see them working with even the young kids, but it's like, there's that picture of the guy on the right. I feel like I know him. I don't, right? But I feel like I know this man. And I'm shocked to see him holding a brick. It's like, what do you, what do you plan on doing with that, sir? It's like, we have an insurrection that we need to put down. And what's interesting is it's not a foreign army coming in. It's a neighbor. And the neighbor is defined as a danger simply because of his skin color. But so is the white man considered a threat because of his skin color. See, here's what I would say, the devil is playing us. We know in this room that skin color means Zippo in the kingdom of heaven. And yet, culturally, our nation has been played on this line for so many years. History.com says it this way, 17-year-old Eugene Williams was floating on a homemade raft off the shores of Lake Michigan. So this is what's going to start the Chicago race riots right here. So we have a 17-year-old black boy that is going to be floating on a raft off the shores of Lake Michigan, trying to escape the city's oppressive summer heat when a white man named George Stauber started pelting him with rocks. Williams had unwittingly drifted past the line that divided the white beach from the black beach. A rock hit Williams in the head, knocking him unconscious. His body went limp and slipped into the lake. No one got to Williams in time to save him. A white police officer refused to arrest Stauber, despite a growing crowd of angry witnesses to the murder. By the time William's lifeless body had been removed from the lake, a crowd, around, a crowd of around 1,000 black people had gathered, demanding action. For many, William's death was a microcosm of the long-standing violence perpetrated against black people without consequence. In response to the protest, armed white men jumped in cars and tore through the city streets, firing into black homes and businesses. A white mob marched down the street, assaulting black pedestrians and torching black homes. Still... Police refuse to act. All right. I know you can feel sort of the politics in that just right on the edges. Uh, you almost feel like, yeah, whoever's writing that also has an agenda. I, I understand. This is the way we're, we're set towards it. However, it also is no matter which case you look at, there is no excuse for any of this behavior. This is incorrect. And it is true that the white policeman turned away and would not arrest George Stauber, who just killed in front of who knows how many witnesses on a public beach, just killed a black 17 year old boy. And when the police turn their back and do nothing, what do you think the black community is going to be incited to do? Defend themselves. And so you have to recognize the, the tensions that are gonna come from the way that, this is also happening in other parts of the country at this exact time. So everything is spiked and sensitive. The National World War One Museum and Memorial says this, likely the deadliest incident of the Red Summer occurred in and around Elaine, Arkansas on September 30 and October 1st after a white law officer was killed in a shootout outside a black sharecropper gathering. Governor Charles Brill ordered 500 army soldiers from nearby Camp Pike to march on Elaine and put down what was labeled an insurrection among the black sharecroppers. Estimates vary as to how many African Americans were killed, but upwards of 200 are believed to have lost their lives targeting the black veteran, lest he think himself to be equal. Now, this is one of the tensions for me that is really hard. And that is that, you know, here we have things like July 4th and we cherish the liberties that we have. We have things like Memorial Day, which are meant to say thank you and to pay honor to those that have suffered and died To Gain us our freedom and to keep for us our freedom. And then we take the very symbol of that here, which is a veteran. And these black veterans, when they came back, many of them wanted to walk the streets in their uniform. And I could say, do you blame them? But this was not in the Jim Crow laws up to that time, but immediately was included in the Jim Crow laws. You Don't go around and wear one of those uniforms and act like you belong in it. And so when a black man would be seen in a uniform, he became the target of the white community. Put him down. And so many of them were lynched. Simply, guys, listen, simply for wearing (laughs) that uniform. So targeting the black veteran, lest he think himself to be equal. History.com says it this way, as bloodshed spread nationally to South Carolina, Nebraska, Florida, Ohio, among others, veterans continued to be targeted. At least 13 veterans were lynched across the United States after the war. Many of them were in uniform, which worn in public, many white people saw as an affront to America's racial caste system. Thousands of black veterans were assaulted, threatened, abused, or lynched following military service. No one was more at risk of experiencing violence and targeted racial terror than black veterans who had proven their valor and courage as soldiers during the Civil War, World War I, and World War II. The most susceptible group in the country to any racial violence were veterans. Isn't that interesting? And so, it just it's because they were the greatest threat. They were the most susceptible to thinking of themselves higher than they should. And so by definition, that was still a Jim Crow violation, even though if it wasn't written in the the code. So what is this, guys? You know, when I try and like circle this in our history, and I know you didn't do anything. You're just sitting here in 2023 staring at it going, wow, that's not good. What is this a sin of? You know how it's like the sin of rebellion or the the sin of witchcraft or the, the sin of selfishness. What is this? What is this the sin of? Because our country has perpetrated something that is wrong. And we are part of that country. And you know when it says in Exodus, it talks about the sins of the fathers are visited upon the sins of their children unto the third and fourth generation. You know, it's one of those thoughts that I have that maybe we need to more seriously address this, even internally, even though we didn't perpetrate it. And just say, this needs, we need to make it clear in our own soul, we do not consent to this. This is not our attitude. And to deliberately even ask God for his perspective, his heart, his care for this community. And even though you've maybe never had what you would call, you know, a racially prejudiced thought that to recognize that for whatever reason, our forefathers had a lot of them, and which means we are extra susceptible. I understand how sin patterns work through generations. I've watched it, and just in adoption, I recognize, because when I see my children that are adopted behaving different than the sin package I have, if you could call it that way, you know, it's like my uh, biological kids have the same sin package I do. Yeah, I did that too when I was young. Yeah, yeah. And then my adopted kids have a totally different one. It's odd. In other words, it's almost like we could call it the DNA, but it's a spiritual DNA package that is handed down. And so for those of us in this country to recognize if you have black skin, it's very likely that you have a heritage that went through some of this. And if you have white skin, it's very possible that you have a heritage that participated in some of this. And whether it was with a brick in hand you know, I would like to think, you know, I come from seven generations of pastors in one of my lines. It's like, well, of course. They wouldn't have persi- participated in any of this. And then I see the Ku Klux Klan with a big cross on it. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm hoping they didn't participate in any of this, right? I, it's not the type of stuff you write in your journal. This is the type of stuff that was private, this was hidden. And it is a shame in our culture, it really is. And it's not something I'm even saying, I know, it's hard not to sound political when I say this. It's like, I must be some liberal bleeding heart that I'm even saying any of this. And I'd say, that is the lie of the devil right there, that you need to be political to even bring this up. And that has been the problem, even with my first, what, this is my fifth session, even to try and get to this point where I'm saying, what is this? We call it racial injustice. We call it racial prejudice. Racial bigotry, we have our name for it, but that just gets thrown out with the trash anyways. That means hardly anything to us because every single one of us is like, well, I don't do that. What is this? So we know it's selfishness. This is mine. You can't have it. We know it's pride and superiority. I'm better than you. We see that. We know it's self-justification. What? What? Hey, there's reasons why I did that. Hey, there's good reasons. You look at the situation, it's all explained away. Why I need to do this. We know it's discrimination, just like we talked about in the book of James. With if a rich man and a poor man enter, you know, don't show special uh, privileges, don't show special attention to the rich man just because of his clothing, or we could say just because of his skin color. We know it's diminishment. We see the literal pushing down and the hindrance, the damper pedal upon this uh this people and we know it is putting a blockage a hindrance in their path from being able to do what normal people should be able to do if we truly have freedom and liberty well we have freedom and liberty but we don't want someone else to have full freedom and liberty it just they should be appreciative of what they do have instead of saying would you be willing to switch places with them then how about you take their position and you give them yours And then we'll ask you the question, why don't you just be okay and fine with what you have? It's hard because the situation itself is inciting. If I'm talking to the black community, I'm going to plead with them to not retaliate and to heed the devil's bait towards the white community. But if I'm talking with the white community, I'm gonna say, this stops now. That list of nonsense, you get it out of your life and you repent. So both sides have to stop their participation in whatever causes this to escalate. But at the same time, there is a responsibility that has to be addressed in this. So I'm just going to go through some Proverbs. Since I'm saying, what do you call this? I'm going to let the Proverbs just bring some language to light here. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These 16, 16, uh, boy, I have that number in my head from the... The description down there. Okay, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. So whatever I'm about to read, God doesn't just dislike, he hates. These are an abomination to him. You cannot come up with a stronger word than that, an abomination to God. A proud look. Okay, guys, I think we have some of that going on here. I think we have a proud look going on, and God hates it. A lying tongue. You know how many lynchings were covered up with lies? You should see it. When I get into the FBI season, when they're assigned, which they don't want to be, a whole bunch of white men in the FBI that are assigned to deal with the lynchings uh, of black people, and they come into a small town, you know that every single person, including the black people, lie. And you could say, why would the black people lie? They know exactly who did the lynching. Why would they lie? Do you guys know why? Because if they say anything, them and their family are lynched next. No one said anything. It's like everything about this time period is a bunch of lies, guys. It's all covered over. When all of us are like, hey, I don't know anything about this. You know, are we sure it really happened? Hands that shed innocent blood. I think we're dealing with a little of that too. A heart that devises Wicked plans. I, you know, it's funny, because I could say, wait till we get to the lynching story. It's like, I don't know that I want you to be too excited about that. But it's all a device. It's all a scheme to bait these black people away from everyone else into the country and then to get them. It's a wicked scheme. That's exactly what this is. Feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and listen to this, one who sows discord among brethren. Anyone who spikes the punch on racial issues to me, that is a demonic work. Anyone who tries to break apart the body of Christ, that's like chief worker against the health of the church right there. Like as a shepherd of the church, whoa, it's a big deal. If someone starts to sow discord in the body and to create fractures, big deal. This is a culture that we're dealing with. And this issue has been utilized by the enemy to break us apart so many times. And I say, no longer. We don't play this game. So Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So just imagine if we changed our tact. Hatred, by the way, which is a big part of this, like what is this a sin of? Well, hatred, yeah, I I think that's accurate. It may not be in your soul, but it's very real in our history. And hatred, if it continues, stirs up strife. But if we change our tact in love, well, you know what? It changes the game. Proverbs 11.1, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So when you're dealing with equality issues, when you're dealing with, you know, I used to teach constitutional law. And so when I taught equality, I said, uh, equality is, is like a basketball game. And so everyone plays according to the same rules. If you treat one team and you look away and you don't call a foul because you favor that team, that's not equality. So one team can step out of bounds, but the other team, they even get with an inch within the out-of-bounds, tweet, and you blow the whistle. What is that going to create? That's going to create a discord. And we call ourselves equal, under law. The Constitution is the law. It's not men's opinion, it's the law. And so you can appeal. If someone says, hey, that was, I was not out of bounds, well, then you can appeal. And someone else could say, hmm, yeah, let's look at this from a different angle. And so what we're doing is we're giving a certain team, like, extra high sneakers. You know, they have, like, three-foot-high sneakers now. And now they can go out of bounds, and the other team, you know, can get within a foot of the out of bounds. Again, it only incites the opposite direction. This is an incorrect way that we've handled it in our history. We have an amazing governmental model. We really do. But we haven't always wielded it in the most efficient way. Dishonest scales, which is what that is, when you measure someone according to a different weight and a different standard, and you're harder on them than someone else, that's a dishonest scale. And that is an abomination to the Lord. That's a pretty strong statement. But a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 12, 6, the words of the wicked are, lie in wait for blood but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. Well, that's what we see here. Proverbs 14, 21, he who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. He who despises his neighbor sins. It's interesting because this is our country and how many of us despise a neighbor because of political views. You know, they they stick a certain sign in their front yard during election season and we immediately have a certain contempt towards them. They're part of the problem. However, if you stick a certain sign in your yard, that's exactly the same treatment you're getting. And that is an incorrect way of handling anything. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. Listen to this, guys. This is a great line in the Bible. But he who hates correction is stupid. Some of you aren't even allowed to say that word in your home, and I just read it in church. It's the Bible! I'm going to read it again just because I have freedom to do it. (laughs) But he who hates correction is stupid. Guys, I think we need to be corrected even though we're not like, I I don't even see what I'm doing. Well, that's what I want to talk about as we finish. What about us? Are we currently carrying any bricks? Because when I say this, you immediately are thinking towards race. And maybe specifically, if you're white, you're thinking of towards black people. And if you're black, you're thinking of towards white people. Well, that's not always the application of this. You see, if we're going to learn lessons from our history, we need to learn how to apply them immediately to our life now. Now, it does not mean I don't want you to be extremely sensitive in your own spiritual life to break any consent that you would have towards agreement with what this is that I am bringing up. This is bad stuff, evil stuff that has rocked our nation and created division in our nation. No more. But then also in our lives. You guys, when we were giving that special evening session when I was going through some embarrassing moments, I don't know if you guys remember that, and I was talking about uh, actually... Was that no? This is a different story. This is uh, during our training. This is that's not even erase that. This is when I was talking about uh, spirit of the humble, and I was talking about my relationship with my brother, and my relationship with my brother would be the equivalent of what we see here, that he's my brother, and yet the way I was treating him growing up was the same way that you would see this superiority of the white community over the black and I put him down, I discouraged him, and if he ever thought he was all that, then it was my job, I would never have called myself the Ku Klux Klan, but it was my job, without my parents seeing it, because I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate it, to put him in his place. And so even though I could say I don't relate to this history at all, when I allow the Spirit of God to touch me, it's like, whoa, 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 it's in me. The same Spirit that is there is in me, not in the same way. It's like, I I don't have any issue towards black people. That isn't in my thoughts, right? But I have hosted this in my life, and I wanna be sensitive to get it out. And so even in this situation, it was so hard for me to acknowledge to my brother that I was wrong. But it was one of the most important breakthroughs in my life for me to come to the one that I had oppressed, in a sense, held a brick against. And to humble myself and to make that right, to clear my own soul, but also to clear the relationship between us, which is what's called reconciliation, is essential for our souls. And so for any of you, if you have been oppressed and someone has carried a brick against you, it is just as important to actually forgive and to let that go and to not foster the strife that the enemy wants to foster. We cannot be played by the enemy either way. And if we're going to change this storyline of the church where we become the help in this age and generation instead of part of the problem, we have to set this off to the side. We have to discard this and throw this in the trash because the church in our country has hosted this very thing if it's not evidence enough to show the Ku Klux Klan with a big cross on their chest, that should be enough for us. In in Germany, 80% of that country was Protestant Christian. 80%. And yet they had concentration camps and were eradicating the Jews by the millions. This ought not to be in us. We are saints of the living God. We have been redeemed by his shed blood. We have had him pour out his love and his mercy on us and let's make sure that we are thoroughfares for his love and mercy towards everyone around us. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you to cleanse these temples individually and corporately. Lord, I pray that this sin of our heritage would be eradicated and disconnected from us moving forward. That we would not host it in even the slightest degree in our individual lives, in our families, in our relationships with our neighbors, but that we would be marked by the care, the love, and the kindness of Jesus Christ. It does not mean that we agree, but we love, not because of agreement, but because of your value that you place on those around us. Lord, we want to love them with your love. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.